Today I want to preach from Romans chapter 6, if you want to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, as I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to proceed this morning assuming, maybe not a good thing to do, but assuming that you're at least familiar with the details or some of the details of the resurrection. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to proceed as if we all know the story, and if you don't know the story, I'd be more than happy to sit down with you at any point and tell you the story of Jesus' crucifixion and how he died for our sins and how they placed him in a sealed grave and that that grave was guarded by Roman soldiers. And yet in spite of that, on the third day, Jesus resurrected from the dead and the tomb is now empty. What I want to talk about this morning is not so much the details of the story, but what I want to talk about today is how has that story impacted you? And the question that I want to ask you today is a very specific one, and I'll ask it a couple of different ways throughout the morning. But the question I want to ask is, has the resurrection of Jesus radically changed your life? Because what we're talking about today is not just some nice historical story, although it is historically true. And we've, we've spent some Easter's, I've actually gone through the, the evidence of the resurrection and how we can know this is historically accurate and there's lots of great evidence for that. Uh, but, but this isn't just a historical event. The resurrection of Jesus is a personal event. It is something that was meant to not only change your life, but to change your eternal destiny The resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore, is not only the most important historical event to ever happen, but it needs to be the most important personal event that has ever happened in your life. And so the question is, has the resurrection of Jesus radically changed your life? Let's look at Romans 6 together. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. If if this is your first time here or you're unfamiliar with what normally happens here at Redemption, we usually read a decent chunk of Scripture, and then we just work through that Scripture together. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. I'll read. Feel free to follow along. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. 
But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we gather today to remember your resurrection from the dead, as we remember the, in the words that we just read that you died to sin once and for all, and you will not die again. And those who are united with you through faith in what you have done, those who are united with you through baptism, are united with you in your death, in your burial, in your resurrection, and in the new life that you came to attain for us. May we be radically changed by the resurrection. Jesus, this Easter, I'm asking that you would personally work in the hearts, minds, and souls of every person sitting in this room and every person listening online that we might be radically changed by you. Lead us as we look to your word together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. My basis for asking this question of whether or not you have been radically changed by the resurrection of Jesus really begins with an observation of the first people who encountered the resurrection of Jesus. You're probably familiar with the idea that before Jesus went to the cross, he had gathered followers. Some of those followers he, he appointed to a unique position that would eventually become his apostles. We know them, sometimes they're called the 12 disciples. Of those 12 disciples, when, when Jesus was arrested and falsely convicted and sent to be crucified, we know that all of those disciples deserted him. We know that these men were unwilling to suffer the price that Christ came to pay and that they left him to be crucified alone. We also know that after Jesus' resurrection, that those men, minus Judas, who had betrayed Jesus and, and was the one who actually led to his arrest and crucifixion, we know that those other 11 men all went on to be radically changed by the resurrection of Jesus to commit their lives to preaching the gospel, which is the good news of the resurrection. And 10 of those 11 would actually give up their lives as martyrs for the gospel. So what happened to them? What changed them? How did these men go from, let's say, cowardly and fearful and afraid to even be identified as followers of Jesus to those who would be willing to lay down their lives and die for the gospel. Well, what happened to them is obvious in the scriptural story. What happened to them is they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And that so radically changed them that history itself was turned upside down. So the question again today is, has the resurrection of Jesus radically changed your life? Paul asks it a little bit differently. Paul in Romans chapter 6 is addressing those who apparently 
had heard the, the, the story of the resurrection. They were familiar with the gospel. They had even had some sort of response to the gospel, and yet their lives were not radically changed. They were looking for some sort of excuse to carry on the same sinful lifestyle that they were living before they encountered the resurrected Jesus and before they had responded to the gospel. And he's, he's making the argument for them where they say, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? In other words, is it okay to live a life saying I believe in and trust in Jesus and yet not obey him? Is it okay to live a life having encountered the resurrected Jesus that is no different than the life that I lived before? You see on the handout, I asked the question this way. Should our lives look the same after we put our faith in Jesus? Paul's answer and the first set of fill in the blanks on the handout are this. Absolutely not. Should we remain the same After encountering the resurrected Jesus, should we remain the same after hearing the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us? Absolutely not. Because through Jesus, we are given new life. Paul says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What he's doing is he's, he's properly defining for them what it means to trust in Jesus. To trust in Jesus is to become united with him in his death. He says, we who died to sin, how can we still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul's argument for why our lives should not remain the same after we have placed our faith in Jesus is one that we are baptized into his death. We are united with him in dying to our old self. He says, therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, that's the third part of his argument, from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. We are united with Christ through faith, into his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the newness of the life that he came to give to us. Jesus, in in his earthly ministry, described it to one of the the guys who came up and asked him about about why he was here and and, what it meant to follow him. At one point, Jesus described it as being born again. Being born again, that you, you do away with the old life, the old self, and you're born again into new life. The reason it's so important that you be radically changed by the resurrection of Jesus is because to put your faith in Jesus is to receive new life. Therefore, if you are not radically changed by the resurrection of Jesus, you should have great concern that you have not been united with Christ. That you have not been united with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in the newness of life. And if you have not been united with Christ by those means, then you are still apart from Christ. 
To be apart from Christ is to not have eternal life. To be apart from Christ is to, to still be under the weight of your sin. Jesus came so that we could shed the weight of our sin. Jesus came so that we could have new life, eternal life. So let's talk about what new life looks like. There's three things that I see in the rest of this text that describe new life for us. And as I go through these three things, I want you to continue to ask yourself that question. Have I been changed by the resurrection? If so, does my, does my life now reflect these three things that are described as part of our new life in Christ? The next thing you see on the handout is this. New life means that our old self died with Christ and we have changed our mind about sin. Our old self died with Christ and we have changed our mind about sin. I want to show you in Romans 6 where Paul says this in, in, in a very similar way. To, to have new life, implicit in that and obvious in that is that the old life has gone away, right? That's what it means that we are united with Christ and we have died to our old self. Here's where Paul says it in Romans 6, verse 5. He says, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Death is not an attractive thing to us. Maybe you're like, well, I don't want to be united with Christ in his death because death does not sound good to you. But if you are not united with Christ in his death, then you will not be united with him in his resurrection. Verse 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. The issue with the old self, the one that must die, is our fatal attraction to sin. The issue with the old self, the one that Jesus came to put to death and to replace with a new self, with new life, is that that old self is completely dead in and enslaved to sin. We're born this way. I know that's not an attractive message. I know that's, that, that, that may even seem offensive to some. In fact, that to some degree, I think it's offensive to all of us. Because we think of ourselves, uh, not necessarily, well, it, it just depends, I guess. Not all of us, perhaps, think of ourselves as sinners. But this is a universal truth, true of every human being who's ever been born except for Jesus Christ. You can do a quick experiment to find out if this is true. Our enslavement to sin can easily be demonstrated. If you find yourself a two-year-old and you give that two-year-old specific instructions, you take out a piece of candy and you put that candy within a few feet of them and you, and you instruct them in any way that you choose, no matter what you do, you must not touch that piece of candy and then walk away. But stay close enough that you can watch them from a distance. 
you will soon see evidence that we are, are, are born enslaved to sin because no two-year-old is going to be able to resist the temptation to do exactly what they were told not to. But here's the thing. Two-year-olds don't stay two-year-olds, and candy isn't just candy. We grow up, and as we grow up, that same enslavement to disobey, that same enslavement to sin leads us into more and more destructive things. It's not just candy that we can't resist. It's temptations of all kinds. Our enslavement to sin grows with us and we need to be rescued and we cannot save ourselves. Therefore, Jesus came. Jesus came to break the bonds of sin. He came to free us from this enslavement. Our youth this past Monday night watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, a movie that is not fun to watch, but certainly a movie that I think everybody should see if they're of appropriate age, because it is hard to watch. But one of the youth, after watching The Passion of the Christ, was visibly upset and, and, and was asking, why did it have to be so bad? The answer to that question is simple, though it's not very flattering, Why it had to be so bad for Jesus, why he had to suffer in the way that he did is because of you and I. The problem is, is that we don't naturally hold ourselves up against God's standard of righteousness. The problem is, is that what comes natural to us is to compare ourselves to one to another. And all of us can easily find somebody that we can justify ourselves by saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. And as long as we're comparing our righteousness to someone else's righteousness, another, a, a fellow sinner, a fellow human being, then, then we, may, we may feel a bit justified. We may feel acceptable to God. But God never judges us according to that standard. He always judges according to the standard which is set by his character. And that standard is perfect righteousness. And when we are judged by that standard, the brutal crucifixion and death of the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, becomes absolutely necessary. And the only means by which our sins can be forgiven. We Paul says, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. To to have new life means that we understand our old self needed to die with Christ, and we are grateful that Christ came to take our place on the cross. That's what he was doing when he was crucified. He was dying the death that I deserve. He was dying the death that you deserve. And we are united with him in his death, and we have changed our mind about sin. The the biblical word of repentance, in a sense, means that. It means to turn away and to change one's mind. To, To now regard sin as 
as not something desirable, not something as, you know, that we are fascinated with the pleasure of, but something that has made Christ's death necessary and has led us away from our Creator. If you, if you have been united with Christ and you have new life in Him, you should have experienced this changing of your mind about sin. I remember when this happened to me. I came to Christ when I was about 16 years old. And I remember all of a sudden, like I didn't even know what was happening, but I just didn't want to do the things that I used to want to do. And I didn't understand that, and my friends didn't understand that, and I'd be hanging out with them, and they'd be doing the things that I used to do with them. And I'd be like, you know what? I don't even really want to do that. And they were like, well, that's weird. Something's wrong with you. And I'm like, yeah, I think something is wrong with me. I don't know what's going on. But to, be, to receive new life is to change your mind about those things, is to change your mind about what made Christ's death necessary and what drives a wedge between you and your creator. And that's part of new life. But that's not all new life is. New life, if you look at your handout the next fill in the blank is this. New life means that we will live forever with Jesus. One of the ways in which this new life is superior to the old life is that in this new life, we live forever with Jesus. In the old life, we were destined for eternal separation for him. In the old life, we could not exist in his presence. In the old life, when our physical bodies died, we, we had assurance that our spiritual bodies would be eternally separated from him and under the weight of God's wrath over our sins. But new life is different. New life means that we are united with Christ not only in his death and burial, but in his resurrection and in his eternal life. Paul says in verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's the good news of the gospel. When you died to your old self with Jesus Christ on that cross, when you were united with him in his death by placing your faith and trust in him, you gained eternal life. He goes on to say in verse 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This sounds strange at first because... You're thinking, well, if, if, if we're going to live forever with Jesus, then that's in, in contradiction to what I see around me all the time, which is people, many of them Christians, still dying. But you have to understand that in, in biblical terms, there are two deaths. The first one is the one that you and I observe. It is the death of the physical body. That one we will still experience if we, unless Christ comes before we experience it, that death we still experience. But that death is the least significant of the two. The Bible speaks of a second death. 
And that second death is a spiritual death. That second death is a death that results in eternal separation from God. That death is far worse than the physical death that we immediately think of. In that death, no one who has been united with Christ will ever taste. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. He says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. When will you experience the second death? Whenever Jesus does. When will he experience that death? He never will. He has defeated death. He has conquered the grave. What our sin made necessary, Christ's death and resurrection made unnecessary. That separation from God that we were destined for, to spend eternity without him, to spend eternity without the source of all goodness and the source of all life, that, that, that um, destiny of damnation and punishment for our sins and for our rebellion against God has been completely defeated by Jesus' resurrection. That's the good news of the empty tomb. New life means that we will live with Jesus forever. When you think about your own mortality and when you think about the, the painful reality of how this life ends... <laughs> The painful reality that, that one day we will be separated from so much of what we love. And, and really from almost everything we've ever known up to that point. If you are not a believer who has trusted in Christ, you need to know that that is the least significant of the two deaths that you will experience. But if you are a believer in Christ, you need to know that that, as significant as it seems on this side of eternity, and as painful and as fear-inducing as it may be to us here and now, that is the last ounce of pain, suffering, and sorrow that we will ever taste. And for all of eternity, we will be united with our God and with our Savior, with our Creator. And we will live blissfully with Him forever. The Bible describes heaven as a place where there is no more pain and no more sorrow. There's no more sickness. There's no more anxiety. There's no more fear. There's no more depression. There's no more cancer. There's no more car accidents. There's no more Parkinson's. You name it, it won't be there. We will be with him forever. That is new life. Forever in his presence. That's the good news of the gospel. We got one more thing on the handout that I want to cover. But I want to real quick, those of you who are being baptized today, we've got six people who are going to be baptized. I want to dismiss you to go ahead and, and prepare for baptism so that you're ready. Uh, when, the, when the sermon comes to an end, the rest of us, let's look at the last thing on the handout together. New life means that we have become weapons for the kingdom of Christ. 
So we talked about new life means that our old self has died with Christ. We have changed our mind about sin. New life means we will live with Jesus forever. And then we get to this last one. And it's kind of strange, isn't it? New life means that we have become weapons for the kingdom of Christ. What does that mean? Well, I love, I love this last part of Romans 6 that we're going to look at here together today because Paul says something kind of surprising. He describes our bodies as weapons. What is it? Have, has anybody ever described or, or thought of your body in this way? Paul does. He says in verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. When Paul says, therefore, or when anytime you're reading and you come to the word therefore, you should ask yourself, what is it therefore? He's referring back to what he's saying is in light of everything that I just said about new life and and about the resurrection of Jesus, you should live in this way. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law but under grace. What does it look like to be a weapon for unrighteousness and what does it look like to be a weapon for righteousness? Well, the perfect example of this is the Apostle Paul who wrote these words. If you know the story of the Apostle Paul, he wasn't always the Apostle Paul. Before before he encountered the resurrected Jesus and put his faith in Christ and experienced new life, he was a man named Saul. And that man named Saul vehemently hated Christ. How much did he hate Christ? He hated Christ so much that he literally wanted to kill anyone caught preaching the gospel of Jesus. If you were a Christian in the first century in Jerusalem and Paul caught you speaking about the resurrection of Jesus and how it has changed your life and how that he's the Messiah and people need to put their faith and trust in him, Paul wanted you dead. In fact, the first Christian to be martyred, to be killed for preaching the gospel was killed at the hands of Saul. What happened to Saul? The same thing that happened to those other men. He encountered the the resurrected Jesus. And when he did, it so radically changed and transformed him and gave him new life that he went from being a persecutor of Christians to being the greatest missionary of his generation. He gave the rest of his life to preaching the gospel to people who had never heard the name of Jesus. He went from being a weapon of unrighteousness. He went from using his body, from using his life, from using his self to destroy the kingdom of God to becoming a weapon for righteousness. When we receive new, before we have new life, we have no choice but to be weapons of unrighteousness. Our lives inevitably, apart from Christ, are at war with and and against the kingdom of Christ. 
The beauty of new life is that new life means that we have now gone from being weapons of unrighteousness to being weapons for the kingdom of Christ. Now God can use your life. He can use your body. He can use all of you to build up his kingdom. You have become weapons of righteousness. 20 years ago, when I was in Bible college, Someone said to me, you're either leading people to heaven or you're leading them to hell. We had to make it our aim as those who have trusted in Christ and received new life that with every bit of our being, we become weapons for the kingdom of Christ, that we become useful for eternal good, that we use our lives to lead people to Jesus Christ, to lead people to salvation, to lead people to new life. So what about you? Has the resurrection of Jesus radically changed your life? If it hasn't, I'm not sure you've experienced new life. If your life is, is, is not reflective of what Paul says our lives after Christ should look like, then, then maybe it's time to stop and, and ask yourself the honest question. Have I truly given my life to Christ? Have I trusted in him with all that I am? And are, am I using my life to build up the kingdom of Christ? Am I using my body as a weapon for righteousness? Has the resurrection of Jesus radically changed your life? I hope that it has.